Welcome to The Telegram. I'm Tim Stanley. Ding dong, Maria Miller is gone. She tried to hold on for as long as possible, but the public demand for the culture secretary to go was just too great. Now we ask, what does this scandal tell us about David Cameron's leadership? Today's subject, crisis management in an age of permanent crisis. I'm joined in the studio by The Telegraph's Ian Martin, by John McTiernan, and down the phone by Charles Moore. Few stories have illustrated the gap between electors and the elected than the bizarre saga of Maria Miller. It's not just her property portfolio that's raised eyebrows, but also her mishandling of the parliamentary investigation and her incredibly brief apology. And the fact that the Prime Minister has stood by her for so long. In his letter to Mrs Miller upon her resignation, David Cameron wrote... I hope that you'll be able to return to serving the government on the front bench in due course, and I'm only sad that you are leaving the government in these circumstances. The voters, of course, might feel rather differently, Dave. So what does yet another mishandled scandal tell us about David Cameron's leadership? And is there a better way to manage a crisis? I'm going to discuss this with Ian Martin and John McTiernan, but first, I spoke earlier to Charles Moore, author of a magisterial biography of Margaret Thatcher, and asked him what, from a leadership point of view, Cameron got wrong in the Miller affair. Well, not trying to defend her. I think that was the right thing for the Prime Minister to do if he possibly could. I'd say it was more a lack of preparation for the type of attack that uh, he and she were going to get. Um, For example... Was it coordinated uh, about how her apology should be handled um, between him and her? And if it wasn't, that was a mistake because uh, people pay a lot of attention to the turn of an apology and it would have been much, she would have been in a much stronger position if she'd apologised strongly straight away. Um, So you saw the thing sort of dribble away. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So, So is it simply that he faced a choice between either dropping her at the first hint of trouble or sticking with her? all the way, and he did neither. That is true. Um, of course, prime ministers get over-criticised for that because you, you naturally try to stick with someone and then you find that um, you know, other things come out which you can't quite handle. Um, that's what I mean about preparing the ground. You have to think of all the possible twists and turns that could take place. I do think there's one big problem he has, which is partly of his own creation and partly the problem of his opponents within his party. It happened with the Andrew Mitchell Plebgate case as well, which is there's very little solidarity within the party. Right. And it's very hard for a leader to deal with that. Uh, You could say Mr. Cameron helped create that by being too high-handed with his members of parliament. Um, But some of them are certainly acting um, pretty uh, maliciously as well, so that there isn't enough coherence of the tribe, and therefore... When one of the tribe is comes under attack, if large numbers of the tribe don't defend that person, it's very hard for the leader of the tribe to be able to stop that rot. You say that, there, that it might stem in part from his personality and, and his way of handling the party. Is there a strange contradiction between, on the one hand, he can be quite distant uh, from cabinet members, he can be uh, not very personal with them. On the other hand, in the case of Miller, he did stick with her as though he really felt this was an attack upon him and, and he really felt a sense of responsibility towards her. Is, it, is he sort of trapped between those two things? I think David Cameron has the temperament, which is probably on the whole quite a good temperament in politics, which is that you don't worry too much about a problem until you have to. So he's not neurotic, 
but the trouble with that is that sometimes he's not quite ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so when you speak of him having a distant manner, um, I think he's really just somebody who's sort of getting on with running the country and not um, always thinking about every conceivable problem that might come up. Uh, and then suddenly it does blow up, and then he's responds pretty well to a crisis. But as I say, the, the ground isn't always uh, prepared, and I think that's what happened in, in this case. And also you need... It's another point about the tribe. Um, Parliament doesn't work properly nowadays because the the parties within it don't know one they don't know one another well enough. I mean, within their own parties, you know, the whip system doesn't work properly. The MPs are not in the chamber enough. They're not in the lobby enough. They don't meet uh, the rank and file. Don't meet the meet the leaders enough. So nobody can quite understand what what um, tide of feeling is going to come rushing up. They keep getting caught out by this. Okay, okay. Well, you say that's the case today. Let's, let's go back into the past. We're, we're now a year on uh, from Margaret Thatcher's death, and I've, I happen to have just finished reading the excellent first volume of your biography of her. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, which is really, I really can recommend to everyone. Um, do you think there was, there was something different in Margaret Thatcher's approach? Now, what stands out from your biography for me personally is how often she was either in tears or drinking. There, actually, there, there was a personal dimension to her that was quite human, uh, and she did have a very intense relationship with the people she worked with, and sometimes there were mistakes made, sometimes she was too trusting, etc., etc. But I get the feeling that one reason why she won re-election in 83, one reason why she maintained power so long was because regardless of what was going on behind the scenes, she was very good publicly at projecting an image of being in control. Is that fair? That is fair, and also good at um, projecting an image of defending uh, her own troops. Right. Um, this wasn't 100% true, in fact, because she certainly did um, undermine some people in her own government who's, who didn't agree with her uh, from time to time. Uh, but broadly speaking, um, she was very good at uh, loyalty, and you know she gave loyalty and received it. Um, and when the trouble started, um, she didn't run away from it. She used to uh, try to confront it and... Um, encounter it um so this that is a form of strength and it means that you know paradoxically you come under less attack eventually because people know you're not going to buckle uh, one reason that resignations have happened a lot in recent times is the sense that um the government and i don't just mean this government is fundamentally weak and therefore the the person being attacked will eventually go and that that goads people to further attacks on the minister um and uh, the sort of feeding frenzy and under Mrs. Thatcher, that certainly did happen. I mean, for example, famously the resignation of Cecil Parkinson over making his secretary pregnant was an example where Mrs. Thatcher tried to hold the line and failed. Yeah. Um, and so she, these the problems, she, she wasn't uniquely good at getting out of these problems or avoiding them, but it has got worse. But there was a sense back then, you mentioned Cecil Parkinson, uh, in contrast to what you were talking about today, of the, the lack of coherency in the party itself, uh, there was a sense back then that the party would also stand by someone for some time, because yes. the party did rally around Parkinson, didn't it? It did, and um, this is to do um, with a much more umbilical relationship between um, the party grassroots and the leader and between MPs and the leader and between ministers and MPs and all, all furnished by um, strong 
uh, grassroots and also by um, an efficient, efficient WIPs system. People think of WIPs as disciplinarians, but what they're really doing is they're channels of knowledge and information about what people feel. All these things are weaker, and so any leader of a party, political party today is more precarious and less, uh, commands less automatic respect in his party. What then went wrong in the case of the, of the Westland affair? when Michael Heseltine famously resigned from the cabinet, and this nearly brought Margaret Thatcher down. <clears throat> what, what, how, how did the leadership structure break down in that instance? Well, I don't think it did nearly bring her down, as a matter of fact, but it certainly okay. um, exposed um, strains. Um, and I think what was going on is that um, two people, uh, Margaret Thatcher and Heseltine, and particularly Heseltine, he would be more at fault, but she would also be at fault, were having um, an argument... Um, that was getting out of control and uh, about a thing that actually didn't matter very much about who was going to own this, uh, the Westland helicopter company. Um, and so when you get that, the disciplines start to break down and internal government becomes a series of rows. Um, and that's why in the end he resigned um, and um, all hell uh, broke loose. And what it showed up in, in the leadership terms, which is what you're asking me really, is she had perhaps become more capricious, and it was an early sign of the problem which, which grew um, in her last few years, which is the, the sort of feeling that she will run the government however she likes, regardless of, if you like, due process. And, of course, that began to alienate colleagues. Yeah, and, and that can eventually lead to the downfall, can't it? I'm... Yes, I mean, the Heseltown case was rather a special one because he was extremely difficult and, um, you know, well out of line with her anyway. But it did flag up... Um, it did flag up a, a real problem, which which, uh, which he identified and which came up again with Geoffrey Howe and Nigel Lawson and so on. Final question. Uh, David Cameron, uh, we all know, likes to chillax. And mm -hmm. there, there have been rumours about you know, drinking a few glasses of wine on a Sunday uh, and that sort of thing. And uh, again, something that really st stood out for me in the biography was quite how much Margaret Thatcher did drink in her private life. Uh, do you think sometimes uh, prime ministers can start to retreat into <laughs> well first of all hang on about mrs t and drinking i right. mean i think okay. um uh, she had a strong head um yeah. and she liked whiskey she didn't really like wine very much but um uh this was not a problem okay. i mean um uh it may have become a little bit of a problem when she was in a bad way after leaving office but it was not getting in the way of government um and i think that every human being needs some sort of um way of withdrawing from the heat of a crisis or relaxing or even Mrs. Thatcher required relaxation. Um, I think David Cameron's way of dealing with that is, is perfectly sensible, um, and he does keep on an even keel. I mean, when you looked at him in the House of Commons yesterday at question time, he was in a very difficult position, but actually it was Ed Miliband who looked more um, sort of hysterical and peculiar, and David Cameron, who looked more calm and clear. So I think on the whole, um, temperamentally, that works. Um, where I would be more worried about Mr. Cameron is this point about, um, uh, because of not having such a very strong uh, directing vision as Mrs. Thatcher, that he he's not sort of pushing through an agenda which can get you through all sorts of situations. So it's a bit one damn thing after another. Charles Moore, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm now joined by Ian Martin and John McTiernan. Um, 
Mr. McTinnon was a political secretary to Tony Blair and ran communications for the Australian Prime Minister, Julia Gillard. John, how should David Cameron have handled the Miller affair? If he wanted to keep Maria Miller in the cabinet, he should simply have taken control of how she responded uh, to the, the report. So he should have dragged her into number 10 and said, we are going to keep you, but we've got a script here. This is the apology you're going to give. It's effusive. It's, uh, it's contrite. Uh, it shows some humility. And you acknowledge, as far as you can, that you made some mistakes, you rectify them, and then you keep your head down. And if you don't do this, we'll fire you immediately. What I gather happened is they did try to suggest a script for her. She ignored it, did an apology to the Commons. It was contempt for her colleagues in the Commons, which really, really did for a lot of her support in the Commons. But it showed contempt for the public and for the process. And in consequence, she became a very easy target. Why did she refuse to do the script that the government offered her? Is that a reflection on her personality or the government's suspect, lack of control? I think it's a reflection on the government's lack of control. The, the, the thing that Tony Blair always said is that in a crisis, you have to have a grip. You have to have a grip of the crisis. In this situation, she clearly didn't believe that Number 10 had the authority to tell her what to do or that she had to be scared of them so much that she had to do what they said. So in the end, she chose her own route. And what happened was... David Cameron, and she presumably understood this, Cameron was going to back her whatever she did. Therefore, if she took a gamble, she could do what she wanted and Cameron wouldn't act against her. As a consequence, he had six, was it six days, at least six days in which he and the cabinet were defending a woman who he eventually sacked and who everybody knew was going to be sacked. So you saw his authority eroding and you saw expenses return, but as a Tory issue, not just a Tory issue, but an issue for UKIP to use against the Tories. So really complicated, you know, really, really bad judgment. Uh, Ian Martin, isn't this sort of thing John McTernan's fault? Because you were in charge during the Blair years and Cameron established himself as the anti-Blair, that the, mm. the style of government was going to be very, very different. Now, whether that has made it simply less competent or not, is, isn't what we're seeing the fruits of a reaction against what went on under Blair and Brown? Possibly. I mean, I have to say, I mean, I think John is absolutely right about how Cameron should have handled it. However having been a journalist throughout that period. On the other side, I don't remember all of the crises <laughs> during the Blair years being right. <laughs> all that brilliantly handled. There were plenty of crises that ran for, you know, eight, nine, ten days, and then eventually Charles Clark or David Blunkett or Peter Mandelson or, or whoever had to go. I mean, I think John is absolutely right that the, the chaos and dysfunction at the heart of Downing Street leads Maria Miller in the run-up to her apology to do something completely remarkable that she's never attempted before. She attempts to do uh, to do something against the wishes of David Cameron. She plots her own strategy and drafts that catastrophically uh, uh, bland and or arrogant uh, statement, which, which gets her into so much trouble. What it suggests about the machine inside number 10 is that uh, there simply isn't isn't anyone around David Cameron who's prepared to stick it to him when necessary in a way that, say... Stick it to him or stick, stick it, it to the people who... Stick it to who, him and to say, right. and to say um, look, Prime Minister, in the way that Alistair Campbell uh, uh, would have done or even at the right moment Peter Mandelson would have done, say, look, this is going to play incredibly badly. You need to cauterise this wound. She needs to go uh, immediately. And someone like... Andy Coulson, uh, uh, now no longer there, obviously, in opposition 
used to fulfill that role and yeah. pr- to an extent when Cameron would listen to him and was prepared sometimes to say to Cameron, look, this is going to play very badly out there uh, and um, you need to move on this quickly. Okay, so what would have happened under Blair? Is that an accurate reading of what would have taken place? That someone would have said, you need to stop this, you need to end this? The... Kean's right. Um, I'm talking about how you should manage things politically, and partly it's based on experience of being in the middle of crises that weren't well managed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you're meant to learn from your experience. And the ideal thing is not just to learn from your own mistakes, learn from other people's mistakes and don't make those mistakes. The, The Cameron operation in number 10 is insufficiently political, that has insufficient grip across the board uh, in government, and it seems to me it doesn't have a Campbell or a, or a Jonathan Powell, somebody who just goes, boss, you can't do this, it's wrong. And that's the, that's the toughest job in politics, is to be the one that goes in and says you can't do this. But it's what advisors are paid for. The civil service are paid to say yes, advisors are paid to say no. And they're meant to have the authorities do that. And it's a very important uh, function around an office. And you see a weakness when you don't have people that can say no. And you, nobody gets to be prime minister without having a very strong sense of their self, a very strong sense that they're right. Um, arrogance is part of authority. Authority is the other side of the coin from arrogance. But you need to have in your office somebody who you trust enough to say, we're not doing this. If we follow this route, it will end the catastrophe. Let's stop it now and let's do this now. Let's change our minds now. That's, I think, one thing that's been exposed by this process. Yeah. It is also the, it's the flip side <clears throat> of one of David Cameron's great strengths. Uh, and I'm serious here. He, he, is, he came to power determined not to do the same as Blair in one respect, even though he described himself as the heir to Blair. Uh, He was determined uh, not to follow the opinion polls on a daily basis, not to be obsessed by the vagaries of public opinion. And he's, uh, it's it's something very positive about him. He's a pretty, he's a person who's relaxed, comfortable in his own skin, and does take the view uh, when a crisis is is happening that unless it's really, really serious, uh, mostly, most of it's gonna be forgotten uh, a month down the line. If you think yeah. back to the floods, which seemed uh, perilous for the government a month, six weeks ago, well, I'm sure you still remember it and take it very seriously if your house was flooded. Um, but if you weren't, it now seems like a, a, a world away. So Cameron's calmness under fire is one of his great strengths. The problem is, is it because he's so sure of his own judgment and determined to tell people they shouldn't get overexcited? That means that sometimes uh, when he does need to act quickly, as he needed to in the, in, the, in, in, the, in the Miller case, and he failed to see that this was just a gift to UKIP, eve of the local uh, and European elections, and would distract from the other messages that are relatively successful that the governor got. He's, he's too chillaxed about that mm-hmm. and misses, uh, misses the point. But it's, to be fair to him, uh, it is, it's, it's the flip side of his determination not to micromanage and be obsessed about small uh, moves in the opinion polls. We've just been talking to Charles Moore about history and comparing uh, him to Margaret Thatcher. A, a comparison that jumps to my mind is that of Ted Heath, who replaced Harold Wilson on, with the promise that he was going to have a different style of politics, that uh, he wasn't going to engage in that kind of low politicking. But actually, that ended up not helping him because it, it meant that quite often, again, rather like Cameron, he 
tried to stay above things and ended up appearing aloof mm. and slightly out of touch. Uh, but Charles Moore's other point is that uh, Margaret Thatcher got through so many scandals because she seemed to have a vision and that that political vision, quite often related to policy, but uh, more broadly a political vision, sort of kept her going, gave her momentum through troubles. Do you think that's a problem with Cameron that doesn't have that vision? I think that all political leaders who have a big vision or a grand strategy can survive uh, the buffets of scandals and events uh, much better than those who don't. And that's because there will always be something that blows you off course. Provided you have a course, you can return to it. Mm. If you have no course or no vision, who knows what you're returning to? And the problem for the Cameron government is it does increasingly look like the Heath government. Uh, Heath came in as one thing, then halfway through changed what he was. Cameron came in as green and centrist and has, since since Linton Crosby arrived to help him deal with UKIP, he's been abandoning, systematically abandoning the centre uh, and going back, you know, 12 years after the fact, still revisiting the reputation of the Tories as the nasty party. So I think he, he does suffer in comparison to Thatcher and he does merit comparison with Ted Heath. Do you agree with that, Ian? I have to say, I mean, three, four years ago, yes, reviewing a big new book on Heath, I said I thought that there were, I thought that there were some parallels. I think it's, I think it's slightly unfair if you look at how unclubbable and difficult Ted Heath was as a yeah. personality. David Cameron is, is a very <laughs> different pro- yeah. proposition, and actually, look at how a, a big part of Cameron's problem is that he is convinced that his team, uh, some of them are his friends. People like Ed Llewellyn, people like Ed Llewellyn, or someone who's a newer hire, like uh, I was going to say Craig David, but Craig Oliver, the um, the uh, communications chief, he's just convinced that if he's hired them, and they seem like jolly decent sorts, and they seem to work quite hard, and they're loyal to him, uh, then he's got the best team. I mean, I remember hearing him say in, in, in opposition at an event, "I've got the A team." Other con- other conservatives members of the cabinet, um, conservative MPs have never really been convinced that that's the case. And the suspicion has always been is that the team, which does have good people in it, but that the team is underpowered and that Cameron actually really rather likes it that way. Right, right. And that he doesn't want other very, very strong personalities like a a Campbell uh, around him or nearby because they might do what John said. They might say, boss, um, uh, this is wrong. And David Cameron uh, is... You know, there's, there is a nice side to his personality, and he is uh, can be very affable and very uh, charming and very amusing. But um, it doesn't like to be told that he's wrong. Uh, okay, because because I was going to ask, I was going to suggest that maybe the reason why he holds on to people for so long is that he is too nice for the job. Do you not think that's that's correct? I think, I think he's extremely tough and very very ruthless, and I don't uh, don't think you get into that position by being by being too nice. Uh, I do I do as I said. I think I think there is a, a, a clubbable, very likable side to his personality. Even if you're someone like me who criticises him in print, I uh, I think there is he, he's comfortable in his own skin. We've tried the alternative as a prime minister with Gordon Brown. And actually, David Cameron being comfortable in his own skin is is a very good thing. But as I said, the co- consequence of of his self confidence is sometimes uh, uh, an arrogance and an unwillingness to take hard headed advice. John, would you agree with that? The worst thing to be called in politics is a nice guy. Um, <laughs> I would never call David Cameron or anybody who became prime minister as being nice. 
the truth is you have to be feared or respected in politics. And I think, by and large, Cameron is respected. Uh, as a Prime Minister, he has done things which I, as a Labour voter, as somebody who'd never vote for him in my life, do respect. Um, his difficulty is that you can't take the line that you want to be the opposite of one of your predecessors. I'll be the anti-Blair. Uh, I won't do these things. Sometimes you have to be pragmatic and go, actually, ditch somebody quickly will be much less pain for us. And with the elections coming, which are going to be quite important for the future of the Tory party in terms of electoral uh, competition, to cede this ground to UKIP, who don't come to expenses scandals with clean hands, but to cede this ground to them in the, la in the last 40 days of the campaigning just seems like a very big misjudgment to me. And it seems to me uh, the mark of somebody who is their own top advisor. I think David Cameron thinks the advice he gives to himself is better than the advice anybody else can give to them. And actually, in the end, leaders need advisors they listen to. Yeah. And the, the political consequences of this are potentially really quite severe for the Conservatives, because if you think before the Miller story broke, the story was entirely different. The budget uh, had given the Tories a bounce in the polls. Labour were yeah. extremely depressed. Pensions reform. Pensions reform. And the Tories were seen, the, the, the wisdom, uh, conventional wisdom at uh, Westminster had shifted to the Tories are not necessarily guaranteed to win the election, but they're back in the, they're back in the game. Yeah. That's all now been, uh, if not destroyed, it's been eclipsed, overshadowed by 10 days of chaos uh, and uh, clownish incompetence. And was the biggest final mistake saying in the letter that David Cameron sent to Mrs. Miller, I would like to see you back on the front bench as soon as possible? That line, I mean, it really, it just made me sit up because I thought, well... <sighs> Does that suggest that David Cameron is, it's not a personal criticism of him, this possibly happens to all prime ministers. Is he now, has he now just been in power so long that he's here, that he's out of touch here and that, uh, that you know, a prime minister has a very strange view of the world after a while because they're sort of ferried around the country in high security, meet lines of people who generally really always want to meet them and are usually very impressed. And there was Cameron saying, after all of this, after everything that's gone wrong in relation to Maria Miller, he was saying at the end, well, effectively, vote Conservative and get Maria Miller back in the Cabinet. Really? Ian Martin and John McTinnon, thank you both very, very much. It's been one year since we started doing The Telegram, and what a year it's been. I'm just going to give you two words, Godfrey Bloom. In this time, we've seen so many different discussions. We've had Charles Moore doing impersonations. We've had people telling us about what life is really like inside North Korea. So now for a light item, we're going to discuss some of the highlights of the year and who it's been a good year for. Uh, Damien Thompson, it's been a very good year for Doctor Who. It's been a great year for Doctor Who because... We Pertwee fans have been coming out of the closet, if yes, I put it that at way. at last. Um, I think it was you who coined the phrase, his hair deserved its own dressing room. <laughs> but, I mean, how refreshing that um, not everybody in their 20s and 30s um, buys the myth of the um, manufactured um, American-style, breathless and glitzy reinvented show. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think people have been rediscovering the old one in the course of this year, actually. I, I, we ran a whole series of, po- of blog posts about how great the old series was, and that actually did surprisingly well. You can demonstrate how great the old series was. Yeah. By, by I mean, it, that, you know, you obviously have to adjust the pixel size for John's hair, but nonetheless, you can stick it off. On and also, Tom Baker came back. YouTube. Tom Baker came back in the latest episode, and that was the real talking point of the episode. And I'm due to meet him. I think I've been invited to the launch of something or other on Doctor Who on the Horror Channel. I'm not Tom Baker's going to be there. Really? He's supposed to be rather prickly, so I'm a bit frightened. Well, I've just finished reading uh, the autobiography of the boy who played Adric, uh, one of his companions, who reveals that uh, Tom Baker told him that he was once, after drinking a great deal, throwing up in a car park, and a child said to him, aren't you Doctor Who? Can I have an autograph? And in the middle of vomiting, Tom pulled out a pen and paper and said, just give me a moment, signed it, handed it to him, boy went off happy as a Larry, and Tom carried on vomiting. That's professionalism. Yeah, but you can't imagine John Pertwee doing it. No, 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 no. I, I, no. And it would be Campari. It would, be, it would just be a, a small amount of Campari drunk, no more. Um, if I can jump in Tom. just for a second. <laughs> just, <laughs> Tom just Chibbers say, here. Hi. Um, the, every year, as far as I'm concerned, is a good year for Doctor Who, as long as no one notices how terrible it is. Ooh. Uh, Whereas sorry. Star Wars is coming back, I, so I expect you're happy about not that, really. aren't you? really. I mean, that'll be... Oh, sorry, I'm just going to be over here to play the Grinch, but yeah, right. Star Wars, also terrible. Ever since, I mean, the first three were okay. So anyway, sorry. I will, I'll, remaining on the point of Doctor Who... The new ones, at least, are dreadful. The ones I remember from the 90s with uh, Sebastian Ma- uh, McCoy? McCoy. Sylvester McCoy. Sylvester McCoy, thank Get it you. right. Also dreadful. Um, right. <laughs> basically, Doctor Who dreadful. So well, it's, he it's, was an embittered old lefty, and so were all the producers of the um, show at the time. So well, speaking okay. as an embittered old lefty, Thatcher, of course. <laughs> rather clunking the obvious. Oh, less of the lefty. If you don't mind, I've just had a thought. <laughs> right. Um, this may seem like the clumsiest segue of all time, yeah. but nonetheless, we were talking earlier about one of the other big events of the last year, which has been the extraordinary rise of, it seems to me, a quintessentially a Doctor Who figure, Nigel Farage. Oh, yes, yes, we own, were going to come on to him, yeah. Well, he has his own recognisable costume, and you can imagine saying, the new Doctor is going to look like this. He's That's going to wear true. a cover coat, and he's going to smoke cigarettes, he's going to say lots of um, injudicious things, but his ratings will remain very high. Tom, you've been watching UKIP this year. In, <laughs> More than I have been Doctor Who. So in the way like, that one does a car crash, or, yeah. or uh, you know, people moved in next door who look suspicious. Uh, what uh, what's your take on UKIP's year of success? Well, they make great they make great telly, and there's I mean we were talking about it a little bit that he's fantastic at saying populist things, which I, I don't seem always to tie them to particular policies or anything, and 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 it's very odd to see the the combination of people who support UKIP, which is this mad sort of combination of. Uh, Statist, almost left-wing, pe- you know, left-wing people and, and mad libertarians on the right. It's sort of it's a, it's a it's a, a home for all the disaffected people who don't like anything else. But they're doing really well and maintaining constant appearance in the uh, in the media, despite what their followers think is a mainstream well, like, media conspiracy actually, to keep I, them down. Actually, it's a home for people who are patriotic but not racist. And patriotic, but want a small government. And some people who are patriotic and racist. (laughs) Well, this is this is why I wrote a piece not so long ago saying it's like there's two parties struggling to get out of there, and uh, rather. Uh, neatly, I thought at the time, but in retrospect, perhaps clumsily, I did it. Well, one was UKIP lowercase, which is mm. how we spell it at the Telegraph, which drives them bonkers. Mm. But I, yeah. that's the sensible 
party, yeah. the small government, Gladstonian liberals, by and large, I think, represented by Nigel, despite the eccentricities. I think the man is not the man is not racist. The man is not stupid. And then there's UKIP with capital letters and 17 exclamation marks after. <laughs> and they're all online, which is a bit of a problem if, like me, you're editor of Telegraph Blogs. Um, and um, I shouldn't really say this, but the satisfaction of uh, t- uh, unticking the box, saying comments aloud, <laughs> is very yes. intense. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, sometimes when you see uh, 4,000 comments on a piece, you, you do think, oh, great, at least three people have read it. Uh, Tom, uh, <laughs> the other great figure that's emerged this year is Kim Jong-un. It's been a very good year for him, hasn't it? Well, um, apparently he's uh, char-grilled at least one of his yeah. uh, co- colleagues and <laughs> not in fact fed his uncle to dogs despite great uh, rumours. He but. didn't do that, but it wouldn't surprise me. What next? Uh, he had someone pecked to death by buttery guys. It, it, <laughs> I don't, I, but is it a reflection on, on the media's gullibility or is it a reflection on the state of North Korea itself that we believe these well, stories? We'll know, it's impossible to know because we know so little from what is actually going on inside. I mean, uh, it's it's the trouble with North Korea is that it, we think of it as hilarious. I mean, it is sort of yeah. on the face of it hilarious. I mean, but in reality, it is a brutal socialist stroke Nazi dictatorship, which um, in which people are put to death by flamethrower and possibly dogs. You know, yeah, or yeah, dogs. But um, we watch it and we see this sort of faintly comic thing in which. Uh, uh, a teenager gets steadily fatter while having his uncles put to death. You know? Yeah, which so. is every teenager's dream <laughs> yeah, well, come exactly, true. Yeah. I, I, I have developed a theory today because uh, we discovered and I reported in the blog post that uh, they've started airing episodes of Top Gear, mm-hmm. uh, which you know makes you wonder what the people of Pyongyang will think of Britain if all they see of it is Top Haven't Gear. Haven't they suffered enough? But it me. makes me now wonder if maybe all we've been watching all these years is the North Korean equivalent of a Dickensian soap opera. <laughs> That's not actually what North Korea is like at all. Mm. It's actually a lovely place. It's yeah. just we've been getting, you know, season five when they've run out of sensible plot strands <laughs> and they're into the flamethrowers and the and the dogs. You mean that? So they start blowing up caravans next or something? Like that. <laughs> <laughs> they have a plane crash in Pyongyang, yeah. uh, like in Emmerdale. Mm. Um, Damien, uh, finally, very good year for popes. Well, very good year for popes because we've got. I shouldn't. I, I shouldn't put it this way, but uh, we've got two fantastic popes. At we have two. We two for the price of one. Um, of course, Benedict the Sixteenth is not the pope, no. and he has not interfered in the running of um, the papacy. Um, and Pope Francis has actually been very, very sort of sweet and encouraging. And and it's lovely to see Benedict the Sixteenth looking looking a little bit um, healthier than he was when he. Bowed out. Francis has been the most extraordinary public relations success that I can remember, and by that I don't mean uh, that's not a sh- that's not damning with faint praise, because actually the one thing that Benedict wasn't good at, and in fact no religious leader I can think of is good at, except perhaps for the Dalai Lama, is PR. And if you don't get your PR right then people will feel rather differently about belonging to your religion, as it is. Francis has almost, almost made Roman Catholicism fashionable again, which is something I would have thought nobody would be able to do for about 150 years, given the scandals that have attended well, the I'm, church. Well, I'm on record as saying I'm, you know, as in-house embittered atheist, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I really like uh, Pope Francis. He comes across as a very uh, sensible, nice guy. Um, and also what I particularly like, and I know Tim will agree, will agree with me on this, is that he's completely rewritten all of Catholic dogma from uh. top to bottom. Yeah? yeah, that's how it goes. Uh, so now, every 
every single thing. So now gay people are okay. That's that's how it works, right? It I can't be rewritten. Going on it here. can't <laughs> be rewritten. Dogma is like Brighton Rock. Uh, <laughs> no matter how far down you chew, it's still there. Thank you, Tom Chivers and Damien Thompson. And thank you, everyone, for listening to The Telegram for a whole year.